0: But ultimately, I think one of the hardest choices for a founder is knowing when to let go of something and to move to something next.
1: Initiating launch sequence. Five, four, three, two, one. Hello, and welcome to Ready for Launch, the show where I talk to founders about the process of getting their business off the ground. My guest today is Jesse Vaughan. Jesse, welcome to Ready for Launch. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Ian. Wonderful. It's good to have you on the show. I would love it if you could do me the honors of introducing your business and sharing what's unique about it.
0: Yeah, sure. Um, So I'm Jesse, (laughs) uh, and my company is Copperfield. And we help uh, consumers buy zero emissions, home electrification upgrades like EV chargers, heat pumps, solar systems online. For contractors, we help them sell more installations in less time, primarily through digital sales tools, estimation, scheduling, communication, and payment
1: solutions. Very cool. How did you get into this space and decide to start this as a company?
0: Yeah, so I think it's, it's probably worth Starting with a a stat that got us really excited about uh, home electrification more broadly, which is that 40% of greenhouse gas emissions come from our homes and our personal vehicles, which to me was a pretty surprising statistic as someone who, when I started to look more closely at climate change and what I could do about it, felt like I really didn't have a lot of agency, to be honest. I was... um I felt like it was all, up to big industry, companies, um, governments to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And when I learned that a lot of the emissions are under my control, namely 40% from my home and from my personal vehicle, I felt like I had a whole lot more agency than I ever did before.
1: And what did you do about that once you learned that?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's probably worth taking a step back and giving a little bit of a personal introduction, and, um, and how we got onto this, this, uh, this subject. Um, So yeah, I think maybe by by way of background, my copperfields, my second company, um, but I originally grew up in Southern California started my career as a, as a financial analyst uh, in New York at a company called Capital IQ, and then spent about three years in Southeast Asia working on uh, large real estate infrastructure and logistics projects. Um, based in Yangon, Myanmar, and really got a peek into the way that impact capital could change um, change the way that you know societies operate, the way um, uh, we live our lives. And I kind of leveraged that experience of being in Southeast Asia to come back to the U.S. in uh, 2015 and start a company called Landed. And at Landed, we helped teachers, nurses, and, and first responders. To buy homes. Um, that was my kind of first startup in the uh in the kind of impact uh capitalism arena. And I had a blast building that, to be honest, for, you know, I was I was working on that company for for five years. And um, you know, after some I, I took a personal leave of absence uh around the time that my dad was um sick with with cancer. And you know, landed was growing very quickly at the time. We were 70 plus people. This was 2020, midst of COVID. It was a, um, you know, by external, all external metrics, an extremely successful business, um, which I got to be a part of. But it was kind of during a time that I that I was, um, you know, away from the day-to-day operations of my last startup, that I reflected on what type of impact I wanted to have and what I had to offer to the world. I think, namely, I realized through kind of a, a, a the space that was created by the time I was spending with my dad in his last few months, that I realized that one, I, I didn't want to come back to a startup that really needed me to manage a large team growing very quickly. And I wasn't—that wasn't what I had to offer the world. And two, I realized as I was starting to my own family that I really wanted to focus my efforts on the collective climate challenge that we all face and finding a way to abate its worst um, its worst impacts. And I was thinking, you know, my—I love being out in the mountains, skiing, mountain biking, camping surfing, and I want my daughter to be able to experience those, those sorts of things in a world that she can fully embrace. And, um, and so it just didn't, it, it didn't feel right to stay on that one startup. And, and um, kind of through a series of months, I handed off what I had ownership for to my co-founders and set off to start a climate company at kind of zero to one stage and i think it was you know i had mentioned you know what copperfield does home electrification but i would say that we we wandered around in in the wilderness and by we i mean somewhere along the way i picked up a co-founder named mark who's an amazing partner um i can talk more about how we had met and 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 started working together and assessed our compatibility as as founders but you know, we, we wandered for a good number of months trying to find ways to apply our, our collective and independent skill sets to this global challenge of climate change. And really, um, after some, some detours, realized, one, that we were stoked on home electrification. I mean, as I said, we finally had found something where, as consumers, we had agency. And as founders, we felt like we could do something about this climate challenge by redirecting, um, uh, the path of consumer, um, uh, behavior, uh, particularly online towards things that reduce, uh, you know, h- humans impact on, on the planet. Um, and so, yeah, when you ask what's the, you know, what did it mean to me when we, when we found this, um, this stat or this this problem to solve, I think it really um, it really revealed to me, and I think it's fair to say for both Mark and I, that we could have a much bigger impact than maybe we had appreciated uh, before. Mm.
1: That's a great story. If you're okay with that, I'd actually love to touch on um, your dad a little bit. Something I always wonder, um, about people who have started business uh, whether it's one or many is do you think that your parents had an influence in your desire to be a founder like did they did you learn something from them about what it took what it takes to be a company founder rather than going through a more traditional like employee working your way up the ranks kind of approach to your career
0: yeah absolutely
1: and um
0: yeah, I think the the formative years of of my childhood and being with, um, I think both my parents and my grandfather, frankly, had a huge impact on who I wanted to become as a as a as a founder and as a as a person. I, I come from a family of of entrepreneurs and and people who come from non uh, non traditional uh, career paths. So my my dad was a doctor um my mom uh was a school teacher and um and my dad actually became a, a doctor at 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 40 years old um quite late in his career and had a number of um earlier earlier career uh, careers that um you know uh maybe in some ways presaged his becoming a doctor but were very different and um and then my my grandfather <laughs> I'm the I'm one of seven grandchildren on my mom's side and um, I'm, so I'm, one, I'm the one male of seven uh, grandchildren uh, on my mom's side. And somewhat uh, patriarchically, uh, um, my grandfather, um, who, never, who never went to college, but was quite a successful entrepreneur, started grooming me um, to be uh, an entrepreneur myself. I think I remember going um, at five years old to um, meet with real estate brokers with him, investment managers and, and, um, and kind of similar type of types of, (laughs) I guess you could call entrepreneurial activities. And, um, and I, and I think he shared with me a, a story that had stuck with me, um, you know, multiple times as I was growing up, my grandfather, this is, he was, um, when he, his professional career before he became an investor entrepreneur was, um, as a commercial artist. So he, he did, um, he was responsible for art direction at a lot of the, uh, uh, kind of Hollywood B movies, B, B grade Hollywood movie studios back in the forties and fifties and sixties. And the, um, and he shared that he was in constant fear that if he had broken his hand, he wouldn't be able to, um, He wouldn't be able to work and feed his family. And it was through kind of that experience that jolted him into the belief that financial security can really only be achieved with the ownership of kind of equity capital um, or capital more broadly. Um, And that in order to feel security that he could feed his family, he felt like the only path that he could take was that of an as an entrepreneur, not as a laborer, um, which he very much was uh, when he had his first child. And so I think, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't share that same level of intensity in my fear of breaking my hand or um, maybe that level of aversion from having a job. To be honest, it's it's not, it, it doesn't, doesn't impact my at least conscious day to day decisions but um certainly uh i imagine at a young age um hearing those stories and uh seeing people in my family my dad having a private practice my you know uncles working in the entertainment industry as producers my you know my um broad family no one having a corporate career certainly impacted i think how um i chose to take my own career
1: mm. what an amazing story yeah Do you think there's any, like, you know, you you described being groomed by your grandfather other than like seeing that and feeling that belief of financial security coming from being an entrepreneur. Did you like, did he develop any skills in you that you feel like you, you use still today? You know, as a,
0: he had never had a formal business education. He read incredibly widely and, um, also had a um, really strong instinct for people and an appetite for risk. And I think that um, he instilled in me, and, and this came both from my dad and my grandfather, who were extremely, who, who are, my grandfather is still alive at 90, 97 years old and is um, still probably the most intellectually curious person. I interact with on a regular basis. And so I think what he, speaking of my grandfather, um, instilled in me was an appetite for knowledge, for understanding, for exploration, and then some pretty tactical suggestions for skills that I should go out and acquire that he wished that he had acquired at an earlier stage in his career. For example... He really, um, he really encouraged me to study or take an accounting class, for example, in college. You know, he said that um, most people that he interacted with in the business world have no idea how to actually read a balance sheet, P and L, or, for that matter, even know what a cash flow statement is. And he said, if if you can acquire those skills, you'll have a huge advantage over most business people. And you can probably get it in a, a few months, so I, I think there, were, there certainly was a tact, some tac- tactical um, encouragement that that he uh, afforded me, but more broadly, I think what has served me so well has been an intellectual curiosity, a desire to really understand and know people, um, and build and maintain relationships that. Um, span personal
1: and professional networks. Did you listen to his advice and acquire that accounting knowledge? (laughs) I did. I did. I took a, I took
0: introduction to financial accounting. I went to NYU and I took uh, introduction to financial accounting and uh, it was, I have to tell you, I was so bored in the class, but afterwards and since then it has Proven to be the single most valuable course I've ever taken. <laughs> like from this, <laughs> I, I, can, I can guarantee you, like it was like a, it was an accelerated course. It was like three and a half months, but I still use it today. Like to be able to talk to our, uh, you know, external accountants, our, um, you know, our investors. Uh, yeah, I, it has definitely proven extremely valuable.
1: That's good to hear. I had a brief Career stint in the world of accounting, and I took two really? account. Uh, yeah, a very I would have never world. guessed
0: if you asked me of all what are all the brief stints that Ian has taken in careers. I think accounting would
1: have been on the last, the last, the, the last at the end of the list. It is is now on the end of the list of careers I would wish to return to. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'd rather have other people do it professionally, but it is a great skill set to have in a in, in one's quiver.
1: Mm. Well, I was going to say, I took the, my first two professional exams to become a, uh, whatever, train, finance, oh, I've forgotten the English word, a tr- chartered accountant or similar. Oh, uh, like a, sort of a CFA kind of exam? Yes, exactly. And it was so boring. And I couldn't, <laughs> I, cu- I couldn't tell you a single time I have used that knowledge since, I don't think, sadly. I so hear the I'm ethics portion got, is really hard. Oh, I don't think I got that far. This was the, <laughs> the very the first two exams in the first three months of your training. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, glad someone else got some value out of it. <laughs> but I do. Ag- I mean, I do agree that the financial literacy is useful. Absolutely. Uh, I've always been strong at maths. So that's not really been something I've been worried about, but uh, that in particular didn't help me too much. I don't think.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can learn a lot or it's the, the shallow understanding is
1: extremely valuable. I think that was Mm -hmm. my key takeaway. Yeah. Awesome. Um, Really interesting hearing about your family and how they kind of helped you get to where you are. I'd love to come back to that moment in time where you've decided you need to start a new company in, the home electrification space, but it sounded like you really didn't know what that company was or what it was going to do. And how did you go from, this is the area I want to be in to actually like finding something that's a viable business opportunity? So if we wind back the clock
0: to, I guess this was 2021, I had taken some time off to recover from my um, my dad passing away and knowing that I wanted to start something in climate uh, but not exactly what I had made a commitment to myself that I would spend at least ninety days uh making no commitments um, and to really just explore and it was during that um i think very um, that very open time of exploration that i um, started spending more time with uh, Mark, my my co-founder, my now co-founder at Copperfield. And I think what we, what, where we spent our initial time was really trying to just explore different categories or sectors and where we felt more interest or draw um, from a personal perspective. So I think we, we looked at all kinds of different things from, you know, carbon credits to, you know, um, you know, uh, you know, carbon accounting at one point we were looking at, um, and then, you know, we eventually landed on this, uh, kind of space of, of home electrification, which frankly, when I first heard the term, I had no idea what it even meant. You know, I was like, I already have lights in my house. I don't need more (laughs) lights, uh, or more electricity, um. You know, pretty novice to the space, but it was through I think uh, uh, m- you know Mark first shared with me some of the writings from a nonprofit called Rewiring America that was um, doing um, uh, some some work in the space that and advocating for transitioning from fossil fuel appliances to all electric appliances, and it was from them that we derived this that, or we learned this, you know, um, this, this 40% of greenhouse gas emissions that come from our homes and our personal vehicles. And immediately, we both felt this sense of, wow, there's something there. And, and it's not like this, this was not, um, a notion of this could be a successful business or that we know what we will do to change to, to, to advocate for this elect- electrification initiative, but we had a sense one this shared belief that oh now we have agency and that's exciting two we felt like we <clears throat> we both had a personal interest in homes like mark has been um for a long time a small scale real estate investor he had um he at the time was working on a uh, a home remodel and <laughs> turned it into a rental property remodel he turned it into an electrification remodel um We, um, yeah, and my last company was in the home space, particularly home financing um, space. And so it felt like we had enough personal context to start digging more into this sector or to this problem space. And, you know, I think from there it was, we, we just started Exploring ideas of how we could accelerate or advance this this initiative of transitioning from fossil fuel appliances to electrical ones, and our initial hypothesis was that we could finance our, our way out of the problem. <clears throat> and and I think, frankly, it's it, that was financing, particularly things that exist at the intersection of bits and dollars, is a very comfy space for Mark and I. So, you know, my background is largely in esoteric financing structures, startups, or emerging market um, financing. Um, and Mark's background is kind of at the intersection of, um, uh, of machine learning, e-commerce payments. Um, he worked at Microsoft, Facebook, and then most recently um, was looking after the platform product group at Stripe. And for us, it felt like, oh, we, if we just offer better, easier financing for people buying EV chargers or heat pumps, you know, more people will do it. And I think it was kind of at that point, once we had an initial hypothesis, we just started talking to people. We started talking to to folks who we knew, who um, were either, who either owned an electric vehicle, for example, or were thinking about installing electric appliances in their homes. Specifically, then we honed in on, okay, let's focus on electric vehicle charging. Let's see what people are um, are saying are the key barriers to them either buying an EV or getting charging at their home. And we learned very quickly by talking to people that at least among the demographic that are buying EVs today, financing is not the key barrier um, uh, for people to buy an electric vehicle charger for their home. It's certainly a consideration, but we The more we dug in, the more we learned that there's a ton of purchase friction associated with these home upgrades. Namely, that if you want to go get an EV charger installed, I can speak from my own case. I I drive a Tesla. I sat on my couch. In 45 minutes, I spent $70,000 on a new car and got a text message a couple of months later said, your car's ready to pick up. And the whole thing took me probably an hour of active time. When they asked me, do you want to charge it? I said, yes, of course. And, uh, and the result was, or the su- subsequently, I spent 12 hours trying to call and find an electrician to install my charging equipment. And we just kept finding this over and over again, where people who clearly wanted to buy the thing We're being put off or we're putting off this project that felt less like a a e-commerce purchase, which was how the car purchase felt, and more like a home renovation project um, taking hours of active time. And that I think was the kernel that set us down this path of trying to build e-commerce experiences for home electrification upgrades like... Um, EV charger installations. And yeah and I think the the journey since then to be honest which I'm, I'm happy to talk more about has largely been on how do we enable this scarce resource of qualified um, contractors to offer an experience that to their customers um, that allows uh, them to become more profitable, more efficient and really grow their business. Um, the the enablement of this e-commerce purchase we found largely uh, is happening um, on the on the contractor side. But the the initial the initial insights were really around my personal experience uh, purchasing an EV charger and around. Um, uh, you know a, a lot of customer interviews and then subsequently um, lots and lots of time talking to more than 200 electrical contractors and riding along in trucks um, with uh, electricians installing evs ev charging equipment and really learning firsthand um, the prob- the 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 smaller these little micro fr- frictions when added up um, become a a tremendous barrier to people purchasing these these types of electrification upgrades
1: yeah, that certainly resonates with mine and my friends experiences is that, especially here, like where I live, not everyone lives in you know, single family homes, but a lot of people are in apartment blocks or blocks of townhouses. And you, as much as you want to buy an electric vehicle, you have almost no say in whether you can get electric vehicle chargers installed. And so... Even people I know who want to get a electric vehicle for their next vehicle won't because they have no way to guarantee they can charge it, and yeah, it's a, it's definitely a big problem and something that people often don't think about until they're kind of deeper into that process of trying to make the purchase.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the good news is that that many of these many many stakeholders who have the capacity to mitigate these issues are aware of them. You know, we have um, in, in certain st- cities across the United States, we have, you know, right to charge laws either on the books or or making their way through the legislature, um, basically enforcing that if a renter requests a charger, they have to be granted the right to do so um, uh, to install one in a rental property um, from kind of a government perspective. And then also from government and private industry, the public charging plays a huge role in, um, kind of the wider adoption of, of, you know, electric vehicles, um, for folks, many folks, it just doesn't make sense, um, to charge at home. So that's, that's an important, important, important part of the puzzle as well. And then, and then I think for a large portion of the population that does have the ability to, um, make these, uh, you know, make these decisions about their own space um and you know installing high-powered electrical products um you know what we're working on is making it as easy um as purchasing or easier than purchasing the fossil fuel alternative
1: yeah it sounds like as you did your research there was kind of this one clear standout idea but i feel like often that's how stories look like in retrospect but were there any things that were like were there any other ideas that you thought were really promising but actually turned out you know they're a bit of a red herring or uh, did you have to let go of any other really promising ideas to focus on this one?
0: Heck, yeah, I mean so many um yeah, so many things, and you know I think you know we had already touched on one of them, which is this 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 idea of of financing, which was not an you know i i, I cast it off as a bullet point in a, and to your point in a, a longer arc of a, of a story. Um, but it was not easy for us to move away from trying to just, um, build a finance uh, exclusively a financing product. Um, you know, I, I think that, you know, being a, a second time founder, one of the, the key lessons that I, that I drew from my, my first experience, um, at landed is that, really the kind of like emotional, psychological maintenance or emotional, psychological awareness is probably the single biggest uh, contributor that I can have as a founder to my own success. Being able to make sure that my head is evaluating the information that is flowing to me as well as possible is um, incredibly important to being able to identify what we need to move towards and what we need to move away from, because speaking for myself, I can get very attached to ideas. You know, we have we have fancy biases like you know confirmation biases that we can uh, uh, you know attribute to these these experience you know these these behaviors of going you know trying to validate things that we're already working on or not wanting to let go of. An idea. But ultimately, I think one of the hardest choices for a founder is knowing when to let go of something and to move to something next. Because certainly you will be dissuaded from an idea or a project many, many times, um, regardless of whether that idea has merit or will ultimately be successful. So there's kind of, there's some amount of innate stubbornness that I think is required, but also some amount of innate openness that is also required. And I think as we were, you know, bouncing around these ideas, many, many of which I honestly can't even recall at this point, they felt emotionally incredibly entangled with my own self-worth every time they arose, and then trying to acknowledge, hmm, I'm feeling attachment to this idea. Do I need to let it go, or do we need to hang on and investigate a little bit more? And um, and yeah, so I, I think that that to answer your question, there were many many ideas that floated through, many of which I felt at the time very attached to. But I think if if I'm predisposed or advantaged by some sort of innate talent to be an entrepreneur, probably. One of the highest most, uh, things that I'm most grateful for is that I, um, that I have a short memory <laughs> of the hard things that I have faced.
1: Um, so, yeah. Um, yeah. Do you have any or have you, you know, managed to learn over the years any mental toolkits to help you decipher between the ones you have to let go of and the ones you need to push a little further with?
0: yeah i mean I, I think that the, some of this um it depends in, in a lot on the on obviously on the the individual idea and the complexity of it and how much you can get user interviews um to inform your decision i I think that you know my in my experience um having um having a first hand experience doing a purchase is hugely valuable. And if you're trying to build something that you haven't done yourself, uh, the my, my first the first thing that I that I would try to do is, is do it. So for me, it was okay. We're we're exploring electrification. Um, you know, not everyone. You know, I'm in a fortunate enough position to be able to buy an electric vehicle, but to go out and buy an electric vehicle and experience firsthand the pain of getting that charger installed, I think that was happening right at the same time that we were thinking about, oh, can we finance? these types of products and me realizing that, you know, I don't need to finance this thing. I just need to buy the damn thing. And I just banging my head against a wall. And that enabled me, I think, to then go to, or enabled us to then go and talk to people. So just get in front of as many people as possible, electricians, homeowners, and have those awkward conversations uh, asking them um, questions either about their purchase experience previously or about their current uh, purchase that they're undertaking. So I I think that the, the kind of hearing, um, hearing something once um, you know, I can, I can cast it aside from in, in like call it a user interview or just a conversation. But if I hear something three times, I am definitely listening. Um, and think the thing has, has merit. Um, and then, and then I think, you know, it's less of a, of a toolkit for assessing ideas, but I think that, you know, the, going back to the psychological state of being able to manage that my own, my own psychology and appraise whether what I am, my evaluation of an idea really goes back to like, am I exercising? Am I, Um, you know, doing my either cold plunge or cold showers, am I eating well? Am I sleeping? And I try not to make any, I try not to make any key product or business decisions if one of those, one of those things is, um, or at least, you know, if my, um, routine of maintaining my own kind of, um best state of
1: mind is is disrupted do you is it yourself that holds you accountable for those things or do you have someone else who helps you kind of assess whether you're in the right state of mind
0: yeah i think well I, I think those are there, there's two questions in there and and I would answer them in two different ways so I think that um i am i think I would rate myself as pretty self aware on my own um appraisal of my well-being or kind of my state of mind. Um, but I am not as good at holding myself accountable to doing the things that improve my state of mind or my decision-making um, more broadly. And and my, you know, I, I credit to my wife, uh, Jen, who is, um, who is very good at routines and very good at holding me accountable to them. Um, and when, you know, I tell her, you know, I think I'm in a funk or I'm struggling with this, with this problem at work. I can't, I can't seem to like find the path. And she'll say, did you go on a run today? Did you get your, did you, did you get your hot bath in? You know, I think, um, so she is, she is very good at, um, holding me accountable to the things that do improve my, my decision-making. And then I think, um, just also having a culture professionally within our organization where we can surface conflict or talk about, um, talk about, have difficult conversations without them being unnecessarily charged. Um, I think helps when Mark and I are trying to make sense of a paucity a paucity of, 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 data, um, but still make a decision. Um, we can, we can have vigorous debates um, and call, you know, call out each other, not in a negative way, but just like, you know, are you feeling attached to this idea? Or, you know, it sounds like you, um, you want to spend some more time here. Is that, am I reading that right? Um, so I think being able to have a habit of talking about um, how you're feeling about whether it be an idea or yourself in a given day. Um, uh, it, it just can become more of a, more of a routine. Um, if you practice it kind of every time you sit down, either with,
1: you know, in my case, my business partner or my spouse. Sounds like you've got great people on both sides of your life helping you out. I, 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 I do think so. How did you and Mark meet and decide to start a company together?
0: Yeah. So Mark, um, Mark and I had kind of crossed paths years ago, but never really spent any significant time together that I, that I recall. Um, uh, so my wife, Jen was, um, joined Stripe in, in 2015, um, Stripe, the, the payments company. Um, and that was what kind of going back in, in the conversation, that's what brought us back, brought us back to the United States. Um, you know, and me back from Myanmar and it was during the same time that she joined that, um, that Mark joined, uh, Stripe as well. So we had kind of shared circles, um, for a number of years before we really started spending any significant time together. And, um, when, when I was kind of in my exploratory mode, thinking about new companies and new company ideas, Mark was also, um. He had, I think, initially um, taken a parental leave when he was having his second child. Um, he stepped back um, to do some homeschooling um, with his kind of with his first child, um, and uh, and we we just started brain, brainstorming company ideas. And um, we had met we're, we're, the way that we actually got connected was through um, a mutual friend whom was also thinking about starting a company, but ultimately um, decided that he wanted to stay um, at a kind of more established company. And, you know, Mark and I just continued jamming on ideas and um, and and spent more and more time together. Now, I was at that point in my my own founding journey where I wasn't ready to make any commitments. But I did pretty immediately feel this sense of, I think this... I think I can work with this, this person, this person feels like, uh, before we, before we started recording, uh, we, we were talking about how there, when, at least when I move to a new place or visit a new place, I pretty immediately have a sense of whether it's a place that I could live or not. And I've kind of felt that with business partners too. You know, it's a very rare experience to, to have this, um, this sense within a few hours of being with someone, whether there's a capacity for a deeper, um, a deeper relationship. And um, so I definitely had that even when we were, you know, working with this mutual friend, the three of us, I had that about Mark. Um, But then I think to confirm or to really make sure that our working style was compatible or that we had, the right set of or type of complementarity professional professionally. Um, we, we did a lot of, uh, founder questionnaires. We had a lot of difficult probing questions about each other, how we, you know, reacted, um, uh, you know, how we would react if we're at our best and are at our, our worst, um, and, you know, um, really kind of dug into each other's uh, past um, and also each other's skills and relative strengths and weaknesses. And we had, you know, a lot of just very direct conversations very quickly. It kind of felt like uh, kind of felt like dating as it as it uh, as, it's, as it often does, I suppose. Um, yeah, but, yeah, it was a, it was a good it was a good four or five months before we we ultimately decided that we we wanted to start a company together.
1: I've never heard of these founder questionnaires. Is that a standard protocol that exists online? Oh yeah, I'm surprised you have it. Yeah, should have found it for this podcast. Oh uh, man,
0: I'm, I'm surprised no one has brought it up before on this podcast. Yeah, there's there's a whole bunch of them. I you know I, I don't know if you do show notes, but um, if helpful afterwards, I can I can dig up some of the ones that we, we had done um, uh, previously. But like, like any, anything you get what you put into them. So it's, you know, the questions are, are really helpful prompts for exposing, um, exposing oneself to the other. And, um, you know, you can answer them at a very surface level, or you can really, uh, lean into sharing, um, you know, where you have faced hardship professionally, um, or where you're, you know, how you feel most supported in a workplace. You know, these, these, um, these sorts of, in some ways, banal questions, but some of them are really, um, can, can really be, be taken to, um, taken to heart and, and, and can be very revealing to, um, to the other person.
1: Mm. I guess even whether they go deep or not, is very revealing in a sense percent. Like how they answer it is maybe more important than what they say.
0: A hundred percent. You know, I I I
1: like plus one to what you're saying
0: that um I have had the experience of working with people who were not comfortable ever going below the surface um in a kind of relationship early on. And that's fine. Like I don't I don't have I don't think that there's a better or worse way of approaching more generally, but um approaching, you know, vulnerability. But I do feel like for me, um, it's incredibly important to find, uh, partners and team members actually more broadly that are, um, that are willing and able, uh, to be, to be, um, vulnerable to their, to their team members. Um, and then there's a whole bunch of other kind of things on there that are less emotionally related and more, um, uh, kind of skill set compatibility or prior work experience you know mark and mark and i um had our you know i think we both said we're we feeling incredibly lucky that we had uh, met each other when we did um because there's only so often that people are you know looking to start a company or the stage of their life where they can um and that are compatible from a uh skills and personality perspective. And on the skills front, I mean, Mark is by far the best product manager I've ever worked with and has a intuitive sense for, um, you know, design building or designing or, 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 or or tackling product problems. And, um, in a way that I've, that I, you know i think i have a, a, a strengths in the product in the product world in some sense but um but to really get down to the specification of what an application should do um he he brings a tremendous amount to the table and and i think that i bring um a tremendous amount to the table which you know i'll let my humility reserve for, for the moment but if you ever ask him or bring him on the the podcast i'm i'm sure he can share um my own my own contributions that are complimentary to to his
1: well i tried to have him on but he palmed it off onto you so uh (laughs) typical typical yeah um i'm curious i'm he's had you know he is head of product at copperfield i believe you were head of product at your last startup for a while uh how did you come to the decision around like what role each of you would play uh, and did it what did it feel like for you to kind of give up what was a previous role and, and do something different?
0: Yeah. You know, I, I, good research. Um, I, you know, it wasn't actually hard for me to give up that Lego um, or that kind of set of product Legos in the case of Copperfield and, and Mark, his background in software is just so extensive and his years and years of being a product manager, uh, just, um, phenomenal. And, and I think that, you know, my, my experience at landed in my product work was much more product in the financial innovation sense. So, you know, it involved some amount of software, um, but was primarily, um, we were building financial products, and I, if we had gone down the path of building a financing solution um, as our primary um, as our primary offering to the world, I think that conversation may have been much more much more contentious. But it ultimately was 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 not because of the the course that we. We chose to take, and and I think um, by contrast, I think he felt um, much less. Um, he he also didn't feel uh, any conflict with me owning the go to market side of this this business, just given that I also had experience there um, uh, in in, in go to market. So I think long way of saying that I think we got kind of lucky. That's lucky. <laughs>
1: What does the, for people who like aren't in this world, what does the go to market side of the business mean? What is that? What are, what are you doing for the company?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, one way to think about Copperfield is we're, we're, we're kind of like a two-sided marketplace. We help consumers or we are a two-sided marketplace. I should say we, we are, a, we help consumers buy things like electric vehicle chargers and their installation. But we also help contractors to sell those things and we need to recruit both Um, and like any marketplace, it has this interesting dynamic of you need to have supply, contractor supply in order to sell to the demand, consumer demand for these products. So I think go to market in the case of of Copperfield largely means um, uh, growing both of these sides of the market. Um, simultaneously and in a way that um, overcomes the the cold start problem of a of any startup but in particular of a marketplace startup
1: yeah, we didn't really get into um, you know you'd picked this area of home electrification, but like what how did you get to this decision that this like two-sided marketplace is what you were going to build were there were there many different avenues you ended up exploring? within this space as well, or once you've found your kind of zone of influence, was it quite quick to get to to where you are now in terms of what you're offering?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the dynamics of the broader market, um, or our understanding of the dynamics of the broader market have changed how we decided to um, build our business. So I think when we initially set out, we thought that if we could gather consumer demand, you know, just run some ads, get consumers who wanted to buy home electrification upgrades or an EV charger, that we could go and easily find a contractor to go do the work. And I think that that didn't necessarily prove to be the case. It didn't prove to be the case. I I think the interesting thing about, I think the trades more broadly, and especially the electrical trade is that the supply is more scarce. Supply of electrical contractors is more scarce than, um, than consumer demand. Um, now in hindsight, that's kind of obvious. Like that's why it's so freaking hard to get an EV charger installed. <laughs> like, at least part of the reason, you know, we have people that are selling these products the same way that they were 30 years ago, but there's just a lot more people trying to buy, um, Installations, then, and there's the same amount of people, roughly, um, that there were 30 years ago um, selling these electrification or installations. There's like the same number of electricians. And what has evolved, I think, or one of the key things that has evolved is that we ended up needing to build a lot more contractor tools to enable them to build more profitable businesses. And um, more successful efficient organizations really grow the contractor so our go-to market strategy has really evolved into how do we expand our network of top-tier electrical contractors across the country so that we can support them in really doing the the work that we need to achieve our climate goals of installing these electrical uh, these high-powered electrical appliances and that el- evolution has, Involved us, you know, talking to, you know, hundreds of electricians across the the country. It has also evolved into electrical. Some of these top shops coming back to us and saying, "Hey, I actually have lots of customers, but I, I, I'll do. I'll take your customers. But actually, what I really want is your software." And we have found that more and more electrical contractors now are using a co branded version of our software to support their own. their own sales, their own customer flow. And so this has been the journey so far, at least on the go-to-market side, has been that we are still today a marketplace. Um, but where a lot of our magic is happening is uh, enabling electrical contractors to be more profitable, improve conversion, and uh, increase
1: efficiency. Interesting. It Obviously your business has is- You know, continually shifted in the few years that it's been alive. Do you remember what you found most difficult early on versus like what you find most difficult now? And if that has changed?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think we're. I mean, we are still very early days. Uh, We we founded Copperfield at at the end of 2021, and we're speaking May 2023, and so we are still a young company. even in startup terms. But yeah, there's definitely been evolution. I think like in, in what's challenging, I think, you know, early on it was what we should, you know, discovering or uncovering, um, uncovering the problems and trying to find, um, or to separate the, you know, the classic adage of people will tell you they want a faster racehorse, but what you really need to go build is a car. I think that early days that was probably the most challenging at least for me uh work to do. What has um I think what, what now we're an organization of 10 people, so still relatively small. But um the th- at least at t- today we are now at the stage where we have found at least the early indication of product market fit and it's more about how do we attack this problem effectively as a team and how do we you know, build the right team, select for folks who can help us deliver on our goals more than Mark or I could ever do on our own. So it becomes a lot more around hiring, managing, Ensuring that the team is communicating is coordinated and um yeah constantly recruiting um whether it be team members or partners, investors
1: um, and driving driving forward well, having had the chance to work with your team, I would recommend anyone listening who has the opportunity to to go work with you and your team well, thank you ian we
0: are we are hiring so careers.copperfield.com. Come
1: check us out. Yeah, I'll put it in the show notes. How do you plan for, you know, other than growing your team and that side of things, how do you plan for like the future, whether it's six months or three years? Like what is, how forward thinking do you look and and how do you approach that?
0: Yeah, I think that there's, um, there's, visioning, I think it's a critical, it's critical for, for at least this founder. And I think this company to, um, to have a vision and to continually be evolving that vision, that long-term vision. Uh, I think it matters less that, and maybe, I don't know if this is controversial. It matters less that the vision is correct than it does that it is constantly being tested. And I think that it is important to hold that, which, you know, for us is a fundamental belief that, um, the homes of the future will be all electric and that more and more people will buy high powered electrical appliances online. I think we, we hold that every day, but the detailed decisions, um, day to day, um, while sh- they should be serving the longer term vision um, are, yeah, I mean, fall back to many common things around should, <laughs> like working with you and how how the, you know, how an, a particular type of user experience should be de- designed such that the person doesn't get confused about <laughs> what they're what they, where the, where the button is or um, how they should take a next action to advance their project. Um, so I think that, um, While the North Star um, always needs to be managed, I I think um, maybe less time is spent uh, day to day on like the five-year plan or the long-term vision than um, at least maybe popular belief might um, think of founders. At least
1: in my in my experience. What is something unique you think you'd never have learned without starting Copperfield? Yeah, I mean,
0: I think that um, I might be drawing upon um, what we talked about previously. But, you know, I, I think there's really two things in one. One is that I, how much I really do care about ensuring that my child can enjoy the same sorts of activities in nature that I do. You know, I I really do think about that in my, maybe not daily, but certainly weekly in my work at Copperfield. And second, that I can actually do something about it. You know, I, I, I didn't, I, I was not sure that I could have an impact on this collective climate challenge we all face when Mark and I start first started brainstorming. I have learned that I can, and I believe that I am having an impact on this collective challenge and ensuring that Gia, my first little daughter, will be able to um, will be able to have a beautiful planet to live on and
1: play on uh, when she gets older. Awesome. Final question, then. Where can people go to find out more about you and your company?
0: Yeah, Copperfield.com. Copperfield's with a K, K K-O-P-P-E-R-F-I-E-L-D.com. And um, yeah, they're also welcome to hit me up directly, Jesse
1: at Copperfield.com. Wonderful. I'll link to those in the show notes. Jesse, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate you being here. Well, thanks for having me, Ian. It was a pleasure. Hey listeners, Ian here again. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, it would mean so much to me if you subscribed or gave us a review on your favourite podcasting app. And maybe tell a friend.